Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another edition of Revolution Recap. we got a very special episode for you today. We got caught up with former New England Revolution midfielder Jeff Lerunowitz, uh, who had a lot of success with the Revs from 2005 to 2007 and those teams that made it to the MLS Cup every year and um, you know, went on to play for Chicago, for Colorado, for the Galaxy, for Atlanta United, ended up winning two MLS Cups. Great to talk to him. We got, went very long with him, so we're going to break it up into, into two parts. We'll play the first part now. But before we do, Greg, uh, you got some news with our social media pages, right? We're launching an Instagram. Yeah, we're joining 2015 and we have joined Instagram. So make sure you follow us, uh, Revolution Recap, on Instagram. And, of course, you're already doing this, but please follow us at Revolution Recap on Twitter. Uh, Like our Revolution Recap Facebook page and make sure you give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you don't follow me, you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. But before uh, before I go much longer, we're going to play that interview for, with Jeff Theronowitz for you now. This will be a, a two-parter because we went quite long with him. Uh, hope you enjoy it. And, uh, of course, part two is coming soon. Joining us today on the podcast is Jeff Lorenowitz. Jeff recently announced his retirement after a very accomplished 16-year career in MLS, which included two MLS Cups, two U.S. Open Cups, uh, including one with the Revolution. Uh, And, of course, he was a member of the 2008 Super League of Champion uh, New England Revolution team. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, guys. Since it's recent news, we just wanted to kind of touch base on um, what led to your decision to retire. Um, did you have any interest in playing in 2021? Um, what, what, what were the factors that led to you announcing your retirement? Um, a few. You know, at, at the end of my career with Atlanta and actually even with L.A. It was the team before I was on, uh, was on before I came to Atlanta. You know, I was on one-year deals. Um, one-year deals can get pretty tiring. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it's funny when I was playing in New England, uh, Tim Wakefield at the end of his career, I felt just kept signing one year, $1 million contracts or something like that. And I was like, you know what? That's great. The guy's got some flexibility. And then I started doing it myself and it was like, man, this is really tough. This is really tiring. So, uh, at the end of the fourth year, um, my one year deal was up, um, technically became a free agent again, but you know, I was, I'm I'm 37. I'm at the point where my kids are are starting to grow up a little bit, and I thought about moving again or going after another deal again, and and I just decided to to call it a day. I actually didn't realize that about one year deals because you were in Atlanta for a, a good period of time, so you must have had three or four one year deals with Atlanta. Did you ever look elsewhere around the league? Did you ever have any conversations with? Uh, like say Bruce Arena last year uh, or anyone else in the league or were you, were you really motivated to stay in Atlanta? Um, a, a bit of both. I mean, the the way I got to Atlanta, I was hopeful. Then we had some success. Then, you know, the coach left um, through kind of weird uh, CBA gymnastics, you know, and with expansion drafts, you know, I didn't have my option picked up but then re-signed. So they weren't technically just straight-up one-year deals. Often I would have um, an option but not get it picked up but then re-signed. So in every offseason, I think I did become a free agent. And after the 2019 season, 
um, I think I had more teams coming after me than I ever had in my career. And I think maybe that's a function of um, teams becoming uh, better at navigating free agency after a few years or uh, I don't know. But, you know, I was only a year younger than I am now and I had a bunch of teams, one of which was, um, you know, New England showing some some interest at that time. But again, with the family, it just became harder and harder to move. Um, I did consider leaving, but ultimately decided to stay. Did you hear from New England this offseason? I'm curious because the one the one area I think we feel a little uh, unsure about going into the 2021 season is center back depth. And, um, you know, I know Bruce Arena added A.J. De La Garza. Uh, I think you would have fed along that back line pretty well. Did you ever hear from Bruce Arena this offseason? No, not this offseason. Um, you know, I have, I have a really good relationship with Chris Tierney. He and I were teammates for a long time. And, and he obviously went through retirement and kind of getting into working in soccer and major league soccer. And, you know, he's a, he's a good friend and someone I talk to, um, fairly frequently, but, you know, we talked in the off season after 2019 and it seemed like there was an open door there, but it, it wasn't the same in 2020. Um, obviously the, you know, I think that especially after the CBA was quote unquote settled and it looked like, you know, there's going to be an influx of money and, incentivize teams to to sign younger players i think that the the aging veteran kind of um i might have aged myself out of that one so is there any i know you just announced your retirement so maybe this is a little early to be asking this question but there's no chance of a comeback if inner miami called you tomorrow and they said you know we we want jeff we want a fifth designated player we're gonna throw you know, three million dollars are you jumping at it or are you retired for good oh i'm jumping at it you kidding me three million dollars who wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd, I'd cut the grass for three million you know you just tell me whatever you need me but um yeah you know i it's funny i sat there looking at <clears throat> the retirement document and telling my wife one week i'm gonna do it and then the next week like i'm not gonna do it you know it, it i'm a diehard you know my play on the field is probably pretty reflective of my life off of it you know i'm gonna give it till i don't have any more and um but sometimes the market just kind of cuts you off. And um, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Really happy with the, the run I had. After this interview is done, I'm going to tweet out, Jeff Laurentowitz will consider a comeback, parentheses, for the right offer. And just leave it there and see uh, if that takes uh, if that goes across social media. i got to break news here, Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> please, please uh, make sure that you put the, the caveat that it's as a lawnmower and not as a player. Well, we'll also cut grass. Asterisk will also cut grass. Yeah, um, exactly. Have, has mower will travel. <laughs> Are you hoping to stay involved in soccer? Somehow you mentioned Chris Tierney. He's got a job with uh, the Revolution. We've also seen um, guys like Shalry Joseph come back and coach. Are you hoping to stay involved in soccer at some level like they did? I think at this point, um, I, I've, I'm, I'm looking at every option. And I think that that's partially because, you know, as an athlete and as a soccer player, you're so focused for so long. And it leads to kind of, I think, a split mindset. One is, well, man, you've done this for so long, Jeff. Like, maybe you should check something else out, you know, see if you like something else and challenge yourself and learn something new. And then the other mindset is, well, you look at all these people in the working world or, you know, that have gone on and gotten advanced degrees and now they're running companies, et cetera. And you're thinking, 
well, Jeff, you've kind of got an advanced degree in soccer. Why don't you just stay in soccer? And I think that's sort of the mindset right now. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to be happiest, what works best for my family, and, uh, you know, see if I can find a way to, to indulge the curiosities that I have while also kind of maximizing the, the information I've got from, from years um, in the game. I, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of waffling, but I, I can't say that I haven't done this nonstop for the last several months. So um, I'm really looking at everything, but, you know, my love for the game is going nowhere. And um, if it's tomorrow or if it's in a couple of years, I'm sure I'll be around the game in, in one way or another. Well, let's head back to the start of your career. You are born in California. You grew up in Philadelphia. You ended up going to college at Brown University up in Providence. Uh, Brown obviously had a really strong soccer program under Mike Noonan uh, at the time you were there. What led you to choosing Brown? Um, at the time that Mike Noonan began recruiting me, which was extremely late in the process, um, it was by far the best school and by far the best soccer program um so the the fall of 2000 brown went to the final eight lost to yukon in the ncaa championship and they had a, an incredible team at that time and you know as a high school senior as you do you go and watch them play um i remember going with my family maybe it was just my mom we drove up to princeton from philly and we watched them play princeton and i, I felt like i was at a champions league game i was like oh my god this is incredible and I said to myself, if this guy wants me, well, this is where I'm going. And and that was it. I applied early, early decision, which, you know, if you get in, that means it's, that's where you're going. And somehow I squeaked in the back door and that was it. And you didn't get picked in the 2015 Super Draft and you ended up being not, not getting selected until the last round of the 2005 Supplemental Draft. Did you have any sense of how the draft was going to go going into uh, the Super Draft, were there any expectations of you being selected? Um, you know, when I went to the Combine, I was hopeful. Um, you know, I I was I was named All-American like two years in a row at Brown, which, you know, for me is maybe one of my top two or three career highlights. You know, I'm so kind of proud of that. And I thought, all right, I'm an All-American. I'll I, I could see myself getting drafted. I went to the combine. It rained for four days straight or three days straight, whatever it was. The games were terrible. And there's a bunch of rumors flying around. Um, you know, I think that we all know the MLS back then. It was basically the Wild West, and you never knew what was going to happen. And I think I was told, oh, this team could take you or that team could take you. I watched the Super Draft. I didn't have an agent. Um, watched the Super Draft, didn't get picked, was a little upset. The supplemental draft, I believe, was um, streamed on the internet, and I was listening to it. I didn't get picked in the first round, and I don't remember what was there four rounds. I, I didn't get picked in the yeah, second round. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get picked in the second round. You know, I lived on John Street in Providence. I'm sitting in my little apartment, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go take a shower. Like, the, if I get picked, I get picked. If I don't, you know, I'll figure something else out. Um, came back, kind of went about my day. And then, you know, I heard that I got picked. And so that was, that was really it. I think that my expectations going in were it could happen, but, you know, in hindsight, without an agent and being from a small school, um, I probably didn't have a ton of a chance to, to get selected the way the other guys were. 
Did you have any indication that New England was interested in you? I know you mentioned that you heard whispers here and there. Did you have any, you know, hints that New England was one of those teams looking at you, especially with the local connection? Yeah, I, I think that it was probably always a possibility. Um, you know, from my sophomore year, sophomore year, junior year, maybe even after my freshman year, but definitely sophomore year on, um, I would go up and train with the reps in the summer, you know, maybe show up for a week or two um, and practice with them. So, you know, I had a, a somewhat of a relationship with, with Steve and those guys. Um, that was much more common back then. It never happens now. Um, but having that little bit of a relationship, Mike Noonan, I, at the time, I think he was doing the radio announcing for the, the Revs games. So there was a relationship there. And honestly, the story goes that Mike Noonan more or less had to convince them to take me. And so um, I think the, the words he uses are, you know, he'll be a better pro than he was a college player. And, you know, I think 2005 for the revolution and 2004 and three, I mean, you got Shari, Clint, Parkey, you know, Stevie had an eye for picking guys. And, you know, James Riley also went that same year as me. And so I think that they just kind of had their eye on, on other guys. And luckily for me at that time, and I fully admit this, um, the league created the reserve league. And without that, and without the expansion of rosters to accommodate that league, there's probably no way I'm, I'm a major league soccer player in 2005. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things we wanted to ask you about because it's, it's crazy to go back and look at that round of the draft in uh, a supplemental draft, because you know, Chris Wondolowski was selected that that same round, um, and I think Dan Kennedy was too. So was, you know, there was there were some good players taken uh, in the fourth round of the supplemental draft, which just you know, if you if you entered a year prior, that round didn't exist. The reserve league didn't exist. You know, do you ever talk to Chris about that? And it, you know, do you, do you feel like if that you know if you if you had come into the league a year earlier, you you maybe wouldn't have been playing soccer as a professional? Yeah, I mean, I. I was teammates with Dan Kennedy in LA. He's a good friend. Um, I grew up with Dan Gargan. He's a very good friend. He was also drafted right around then. Um, and then Wando. And, you know, it's certainly something we talk about or have talked about. Um, but in a way, you got to say that, um, you know, it's like a longitudinal study. You look at it, you say, all right, well, then this is the league doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And, we are the cases, you know, Dan Kennedy, you know, 12 year career, Gargan the same, Wando's still going. He's, this is year 17 for him, um, all time leading goal scorer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's special. It's it's a way to to kind of validate what um, the league was doing, expanding at that time. I mean, if you went out to a couple of reserve games in 05 and 06, you might be like, what the heck is going on? Um, but in the end, it, it served a purpose for, for a number of guys. Now, I, I remember going to some of those reserve games back then. And I think I think you guys were playing at like the Rentham State School in the middle of kind of a, an abandoned, abandoned institution there. That mm-hmm. uh, it was a kind of a unique situation where, you know, you, there's just this nice soccer field in the middle of an abandoned school. Uh, but a, yeah. a weird place to be playing, you know, reserve league soccer. Um, and, and, you know, I agree over the years, I've kind of pointed to you as kind of the poster child, at least in new England for why having a reserve league is, is so valuable. You know, you spent most of your first season there. I think you might've played one minute with the first team. Um, did, you know, did Steve Nichol and Paul Mara kind of throughout that year, talk to you about what you needed to do or improve upon to, to get more first team minutes? 
I think that um, I'm fortunate to come out of 2005 because, I mean, you guys know the team and know the history. 2005, I'd say, other than, you know, maybe 03 and probably some early teams, 05 is maybe one of the best teams ever for the revolution in terms of um, how they performed Taylor winning MVP, I believe, and nobody got hurt. And I mean, nobody got hurt and there just weren't opportunities. And, you know, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I'm a diehard and, and the league was the wild West back then. And, you know, now there's, game cards and match evaluators and it's very official but back, back then it wasn't and i used to beg steve nichols to just let me sit on the bench hey let me just sit on the bench tonight you know i wasn't even on the the roster but i would go and sit on the bench and that's because i wanted i wanted that experience and i wanted to to be around it yeah and, and steve nickel and paul Mariner really did find a successful formula in new england for a long period of time um, you know, the biggest part being that 2005, 2007 stretch, what was it like playing for those two guys? So much fun. I mean, the best. And they, in a, in a, at a time when, um, you know, the league, I felt like had so much great talent and so much great talent that had similar paths. They had a knack for just kind of finding top guys and i'm not really talking about myself but it was just locker room antics and camaraderie that i didn't really see later in my career and i think that it it comes down to steve and paul and like you said their eye for talent and they would do all their work in the draft and more or less throughout the year kind of step back and find find a way to just kind of get the best out of you they weren't overanalyzing opponents they weren't overanalyzing ourselves they weren't um forcing the team to kind of go through emotional peaks and valleys throughout the season because the mls can can have those you know you playing well in april and you're terrible in july um but they just kind of wrote it out and relied on talent and relied on the, the characters and the personalities in the locker room and that stretch you're talking about um just think about the characters and you think about the talent. Um, it goes a long way. And, and mentioning some of that talent, the position that you broke through at was, you know, as a defensive midfielder in that revs three, five, two system, you know, Shari Joseph was obviously a locked in starter, but you know, back when you joined the team, I think you still had Daniel Hernandez on the team. Andy Dorman was getting minutes there. Uh, I think even Clint Dempsey in, early on in his career played some time more as kind of a number eight next to, next to Shari. What, what kind of led, or what do you think led to your breakthrough to, to kind of break into that group and become a regular starter in that role? Well, like you said, 2005 is my rookie year. I played one game, one minute. We played D.C. at home in May, and we were winning, and Steve just chucked me on, and it was to kill the game. 2006, I came back. You know, First year, I was on regular developmental. Second year, I was on senior developmental. Um, big pay raise. And so I came back, and I just said, I'm, I'm going to give myself one year. I'm going to figure this out this year. If I don't figure it out, then I've got to do something else. And you, those guys you mentioned were there. I mean, Danny Hernandez, great player, um, huge personality, just kind of like a guy you didn't want to get near. He didn't want to take his spot for sure. <laughs> and, um, you know, Dorms was younger, but a, another really great player. And um, that year, 
towards maybe the end of spring. I remember we played in, in Dallas in May and they started and I love Willie Sims, but they started Willie Sims that night and I was furious and I was sitting on the bench and the game started and we were down three, nothing at halftime. Um, Carlos Ruiz, I wouldn't say like chipped Matt Reese, but he was probably like 35 yards out, 40 yards out and just kind of saw Matt off his line and put it over his head. So at halftime we came in, we're down three, nothing. And Paul and Steve basically just looked at me and said, Jeff, you're on. And I mean, that was the moment when I said, all right, you know, F it, this is it. And I went out and I played my butt off and I remember specifically kind of the the next week at training, Paul coming up to me and saying, you did this on the field. We looked at the stats. You passed the ball like this. You won the ball back like that. Like you did really great. And from that kind of moment on, um, yeah, I just ran with it. I mean, Danny Hernandez was still there that year. We, we went all the way to the final. We lost. Everyone knows, um, Eastern conference finals in DC. I didn't start um the first game they didn't start the second game but daniel hernandez got hurt in the first half of the the second game the return leg at rfk and i came on and i played pretty well and the team won and i was like all right you know maybe i'm gonna start in the final and then you know danny started and which i completely understand from from Stephen paul's point of view um but then I came back the following year and, and I was a starter and, and, and kind of that was that, but it was tough in that midfield. There were so many, so many top, top players. And you and Shari seemed to form what in my mind was one of, one of the top defensive midfield pairings in the history of the league. What, what was it like playing next to Shari? <laughs> it was great. I love Shari. And you know, he called me red. It's funny. Everyone talks about <laughs> red and dread. No one in my life had ever called me red before. You know, it kind of sounds like, I don't know, a nickname from 60 years ago, but um, <laughs> he he basically bossed me around the entire field. And he'll admit it, I'm sure. But it was basically like, Jeff, go over there. Jeff, go pick that up. Jeff, go run there. Jeff, go mark this guy. Here, Jeff, take this guy. And I just said, okay, I'm going to do whatever this guy asks me to do. No matter what, I don't care. You know, I know that I'm not, you know, Pirlo. I know that I'm not even Shaori, but I know that if I lighten his load, that we're going to be pretty good because he's exceptional. And if he's worrying too much about, you know, tracking Christian Gomez, then the revs are going to suffer a little bit. So I'm going to track Christian Gomez. You know, I'm going to run back when he doesn't, when he's up in the attack. Um, and I did it as well on the wings because in that three-five-two, you know, he, we had Raleigh, we had Cano, we had guys like that, Wells, guys that went forward. And oftentimes I would find myself kind of being directed by Shaori to go and cover for those guys as well, because you have three in the back, you can be a little exposed. And that was it. I just, I just did all the work that maybe not that Shaori didn't want to do, but um, the work that I knew if I did it, he would have more freedom to, to do what he did, did so well. It's it's funny you mentioned Shari Joseph and his nicknames. I think he was he always he was always good at uh, giving people nicknames. I think back back then when uh, when I was you know 15 years old in the locker room interviewing him, he'd always call me Big Man. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of nicknames flying around that locker room. I mean, some of the, some of the best. Like I have 
I have Steve Nickel, Paul Mariner nickname stories that yeah, I could tell you all day long. Um, but yeah, lots of nicknames flying around back then. Yeah, I mean, that team had a lot of great talent, and it seemed like a lot of great personalities back then. We, you know, we talked about some of them, but you know, guys like Steve Ralston, Michael Parkhurst, Matt Reese, uh, Taylor Twelman, Pat Noonan. What, what was it like being a part of that group, both on and off the field? Yeah, it was, it was great. Such a great learning experience. Um, you know, I heard Jay's interview with you guys. It was probably a while ago, but you asked him, you know, what was it like training um, in those teams that he was on, and he obviously went back farther than I did. Um, but it was a battle, man. It was like every single day you have to be ready to walk off with like blood coming down your shins because nobody gave an inch. All those guys you just mentioned plus and more. I mean, Joe Franchino, Avery John, uh, Daniel Hernandez, you got Doug Warren. I mean, and on and on and on Connor Smith, none of those guys gave an inch to anybody and they didn't care if, if it was against each other. Um, Taylor didn't give Shaori an inch and vice versa. And it just created um, a battleground every single day. And it was, it was sink or swim. And if you weren't ready to step up to them every single day and get your butt kicked and show up the next day and say, go ahead, you can, you can do it again. um, Then you weren't going to make it. And, you know, I, that that was when rookie classes were, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven players. And you just saw so many guys come in every year and they just couldn't hang with it. And it was difficult for sure. But if you got through it, um, you were a lot better for it because you gained their respect and you also kind of extended what you were able to do and kind of um, expand uh, your game a bit, too. Yeah, and we've heard a few guys talk about kind of how physical and intense those practices were. How, how does that compare to kind of the other places you've played in your career and the, and the practices at those teams? Nothing. Not even close. Not, uh, maybe, maybe L.A. got close because, I mean, um, I'll admit this to anybody on any team. I, I, on paper, the 2016 L.A. Galaxy team was, you know, should have been the greatest team in MLS history. It wasn't, but what it did have was stars and people that played at the highest level and guys like i said before that just did not give an inch um but in general like for four four years i'd say at the revs five i was there for um it was it was so intense and punches elbows blood plenty of you know worried about coming in the next day and and facing the guy that you told to bleep off or vice versa or worrying about a relationship you saw kind of go in the tank um, at training or at a game. But we had a really kind of crazy knack, and I give Steve and Paul credit um, for all this, of just kind of regenerating, you know? Like, (laughs) you had a fight. It felt like you kind of lost a limb, but that limb grew back. You know, and that's what Paul and Steve were able to do. Any other coach, suspend a guy or sit the team down and there's a crisis talk or, you know, you lose a few games and maybe guys start kicking each other in training. Paul and Steve just had a way of just allowing enough of it to go, knowing that guys can can handle themselves and knowing that those personalities within the locker room could self-police 
And for a large, a large part of it, we did. I mean, that's, that's not to say that sometimes it went just completely over the line and you had to kind of reel things back in. Um, but that, that was kind of the, the MO of the reps. I mean, that's why no one likes playing us. Nobody liked playing us. It was not only was the opponent our opponent, the ref was our opponent. You better look out if you're the ref. And the other teams are looking at us going, why, why are you guys yelling at the ref so much? And it's like, well, you 11 and that guy over there are standing in the way of me winning this game. And I'm just trying to figure out how to get you out of my way. And that's kind of how the team was built. And it was it was so much fun to be a part of. And I'm sure for you, the disappointment's been eased a bit by by winning a couple cents. But how, how frustrating was it with such a talented team going to three straight MLS Cups from from 2005 to 2007 and and never winning any? So so hard. I mean, I I wasn't there in '03, and you know what a game opening Gillette and playing LA and and it being full and all that. Um, but five, six, seven was so hard, and they were all in like a different manner as well. Um, penalties the overtime um and then in regular time against houston and dc it it was heart heartbreaking to be honest it it, the funny thing is though and this kind of goes to what i was saying before um we partied after all of those games and it was like that was kind of who we were and i'm not saying we were just like a bunch of like beer bellied idiots like we knew that the game was over, you know, whatever. It didn't go our way, and you got to move on. We gave it our best. We know we're a good team, um, and we're, we're a family. You know, I remember being in Dallas. We lost. Um, I'm not sure if it was L.A. or Houston, but I remember Marshall Leonard's mo- – like, we were all sitting around mopey. It was like we they rented a – conference room in the hotel and you know they had beer on ice and food etc and we were all kind of moping around a bit and then a few beers started going down and i remember marshall leonard's mom getting on the dance floor and everyone just being like you know what we got to get over this and (laughs) um you know that's that was just kind of our mo like we were i think a bit of like family and though those games were, were were so hard um we knew we were a good team, and and uh, I'm sure a lot of those guys, you know, Raleigh Taylor, Jay, Shalri, you know, would have loved to have won those, and it kills them. But as a young player, kind of being a part of that, it was it was really powerful. You know, I'm so connected to to all those people because of those experiences. And we got a few more of those stories we're going to ask you about in a second, but yeah. I did want to switch quickly switch the topic to um, the CONCACAF Champions League, which these days is you know something that a lot of people are focusing on and wanting to see MLS do well. You've played in a few with Atlanta. The Revs were actually in it back in 2006, and you had a chance to play back then. It was the, the CONCACAF Champions Cup. Mm-hmm. And back then, rather than play a home game in February, the team decided to play their home match in Bermuda against Alajuelense from Costa Rica. And I think a few years before that, before you were on the team, they actually played both matches on the road rather than play a home game. You know, despite giving up home field advantage, you guys played pretty well, and it, you know took a, a 90th minute goal in the second leg to to get knocked out. But I, I haven't really, I I don't recall at the time anyone you know ever really asking the team how you felt about the fact that you know you didn't play a home leg, you played it in Bermuda, and kind of gave up that that home field advantage. Was there frustration within the team about that, or you know how seriously were you taking that tournament back there as as players um, back in 2006? Well, I think I mean 
every single player on that team took every game seriously. I don't care what. I mean, we went to Costa Rica one year. We got in a fight with the other team. We're playing in, on the side of some mountain surrounded by coffee farms and, you know, fist fight. It was like these guys took every single game seriously. And, you know, those, those Champions League games, I remember going down to Joe Public too um, in Trinidad. But, you know, nobody nobody um would would take those games lightly or say oh it's just a champions league um but i will tell you that you know the league being where it was at the time and the infrastructure there wasn't a single day taylor didn't let somebody in in the the team know that this wasn't good enough you know (laughs) guys like craig tornberg or, or whoever uh mike burns just getting an earful every single day from guys like taylor um jay and pat i mean half half in jest, half tongue in cheek, half knowing that, you know, the league is what it is, but also just the expectations of those guys were so high and to, to play down in Bermuda, even though Bermuda did kind of become a second home for us in February's um, I'm sure it wasn't, wasn't where they wanted to be. Jeff, let's go back to the partying. Let's go back to the good stuff. Um, I want to talk about uh, a story the Athletic reported uh, after your 2007 U.S. Open Cup win in Dallas. The story included stuff like a a stolen giant bunny costume uh, and racking up a $13,000 bar tab. I want to know your memories of that night, and did you have any involvement in the stolen bunny? Um, I incriminate myself. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we played. So, you know, the, the Open Cup final you said was in Dallas, you know, Oh God, reps go back to Dallas for a final, but we ended up winning. We had a great night afterwards and two other players, uh, they'll remain nameless. I remember we came down for the bus in the morning cause we flew from, from Dallas straight to Chicago for the game right after that, because it was Thursday morning. We figured out oh, there's no point going all the way home. So we're walking down to the bus and these two players kind of pull me aside and they're like, Jeff, you got to see this. You won't believe it. And I was like, all right. Um, and they, they pulled me over to this giant closet that somehow they found the night before drunk, stumbling back into the hotel. And it was full of this hotel's, all of their holiday decorations, all of them. You had Santa in the corner, you had, you know, pumpkins, whatever. And there was this giant Easter bunny. And it was probably six feet tall. It was huge. It wasn't a costume. It was like a giant stuffed animal. And I don't know how we got it out of there, but we snagged it. We took it on the road with us. We checked it under the plane. Um, we named it Roger, and we brought it with us on the trip. And he, he, it became like another teammate of ours. And that game after um, the final in Dallas, I ended up scoring a goal. And, you know, Dallas, sorry, Chicago fans hated me. It's funny that I ended up playing for them. But, um, you know, and I think it stems from my celebration because I scored this goal and I kind of pretended I had bunny ears. And it was really a shout out to Roger Rabbit. Um, But I think that they were kind of saying I was rubbing it in. Um, But, but yeah, that that story is one that is an all-time. I mean, we stayed at – back in the day, we used to stay out by – Midway Airport because Midway and Bridgeview are right next to each other. And we stayed at this, you know, airport hotel, essentially. And it had this giant steel bull kind of in the front. I don't know why. Um, Much like kind of the one down on Wall Street. And I remember we 
stuck it on the bull, stuck Roger on the bull in the morning, just so that when everyone kind of came down to catch the bus, they saw Roger sitting there, and he sat at the front of the bus with Steve and Paul on this on that trip too. And I, I think the if the, if I remember correctly, the story goes that you guys ended up ditching Roger after a losing streak or something like that. You eventually figured he was bad luck, and and that's what led to the end of Roger the Bunny. Yeah, I think I, Roger didn't have a great. Um, ending i don't think um yeah you know maybe the joke just kind of got old and and people you know like i said if if it's all fun and games you win a trophy and taylor's happy but you lose a game and you start screwing around with a giant bunny taylor's gonna rip your head off so um yeah i'm sure roger's got put in a dumpster somewhere you already gave us a pretty good story about uh marshall leonard's mom cheering up the room after a tough loss uh, are there any other crazy stories you want to put on the record uh, i know I, I think shalry joseph implied something about cancun when we interviewed him about a year ago but didn't go into any details um there are there any other crazy stories uh, from those teams that you remember well i mean i've got a million you know shalry talking about cancun I, and I, I was talking about bermuda i mean that was when the revs were sponsored by a travel agency and I forget the name of the travel agency. Maybe it was the one that always worked with the league. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It was it was like a smaller one, and I remember they like, have like fan packages to to travel with the team to Bermuda back then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so you know, if you're working with a travel agency who's used to booking vacations and you need them to book you a preseason soccer trip, they're going to have a hard time, you know, finding you soccer fields. But what they will find you is a great hotel with like an all inclusive bar. And so. For those years, we went like Bermuda for 10 days, Costa Rica for 10 days, Cancun for 10 days or two weeks. And Cancun was all inclusive. It was on the beach. And yeah, it was, it was, I just remember speaking to teammates around, or sorry, friends around the league. And they're like, you went where for preseason? Um, but back then, preseason was really long. And Steve and Paul just knew that if they pushed us too hard, we just, weren't going to make it through the season and i think the revs kind of notoriously would do well um even out maybe in the summer and then come on strong at the end and um i think part of it had to do with kind of how we treated preseasons but um a story let's see we were talking about nicknames before i mean one that i always think about when i think about Stephen paul is do you guys remember ricardo phillips yep so Ricardo Phillips was um, a Panamanian player, kind of an outside midfielder. Had an spoke. amazing gold cup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He he came to the, the Revs on the heels of that, right? Yeah. Um, but he spoke no English, no English whatsoever. And Steve and Paul were kind of, you always knew that they were going to put together an elaborate passing drill, usually at the beginning of training. Training was usually always some sort of warm-up passing drill possession drill and then playing small sided games and so the the passing drills usually fell apart because at times they were really elaborate and if you didn't understand english like god help you you're not going to figure it out and they would yell at ricardo for not figuring it out but they didn't call him ricardo they called him dicky and so they're, they're calling him dicky as a short as a nickname for <laughs> ricardo and yelling at him, but Ricardo's got no idea that they're talking to him. And I can only imagine, like, trying to be this guy and not knowing the language and being called the wrong name all day long. Um, but, the, yeah, I, I don't know. They always had a great nickname for somebody. Kelly Kelly Doobie, they called him Frank. 
can you can you come up with why they would call him Frank Kelly Doobie? It's because Frank Sinatra had the song "Strangers in the Night," and you know the chorus is "Doobie Doobie Doo," and so they <laughs> called Kelly Doobie Frank. Um, you know, just kind of stuff like that. It's just you don't get that everywhere. It's 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 pretty awesome. It's pretty hilarious. But Steve and Paul, if you stay close to them, you're probably going to laugh your ass off um, throughout the day. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you watched The Office, but Michael Scott, there's a guy in the warehouse named uh, Daryl Philbin, and uh-huh. over time his, his nickname like spawns to like Mr. Rogers, and there's there's just a clip of him explaining like the transition of like the, the, the nickname evolving to something completely random. Right, uh, right. That, that's what that reminds me of there. But Each uh, nickname spawns a new nickname. It's funny you bring right. up The Office, um, Matt Reese, huge office fan prankster as well um and steve nickel notoriously has gigantic feet and matt stole one of steve's cleats his like beloved copa mundials that he wears every day to training as a giant shoe and there's a little kitchen and connected to the uh the locker room at gillette matt stole his giant shoe found the biggest bowl he could find um whipped up a thing of jello and stuck Stevie's cleat in it and <laughs> put it in the fridge, um, a la the office and the stapler. Um, but I, I still remember Steve coming in and Matt thinking Steve was going to find it funny. Um, but Stevie being absolutely furious that his shoe was <laughs> submerged in like yellow jello at uh, Gillette. Just really funny. Steve was uh, Dwight in that scene. He was uh, yeah. not Michael. Did not find it very humorous. <laughs> no, he did not at all. At all. Jeff, one more story I, I got to ask you about. Uh, we've heard the story of the uh, flight in 2008 on the way to, I think, Chivas, USA. I, I think you know where I'm going with this. Can you give us the uh, first-person perspective of the uh, allegedly naked guy running through the plane? Uh, he was not alleged. It was ab- <laughs> he, was, he was absolutely stark naked um yeah you're right it was it was boston to la you know united airlines were about i don't know hour and a half into this thing and um it was a a half filled flight it was um you know so there were open seats and kind of open rows and midway through the flight um I can just kind of give you the setup. You think about an airplane, sometimes there the bathroom is all the way up at the front next to the door, next to the cockpit. This was kind of one of the planes, I'm not sure which size, but where you walk in more toward the middle and you've got bathroom on your left, first class on your left, and then coach on your right and uh, with like a bulkhead right there. And so this guy might have been sitting eight or ten rows back from the bathroom. Middle of the flight gets up, goes to the bathroom comes out with no clothes on and it was kind of those things you know like you get into an airplane you kind of feel like you're in a time machine you zone out you have kind of lose sense of time and direction and you kind of like did i just see what i just think i thought i saw and he gets back to his seat he had an open row like i said and he was about two rows in front of me and he just lays down with his head at the window kind of you know with all the sea toward the aisle and across the aisle from him was like a young family, like a mom and dad and maybe a two-year-old or something. And they were appalled. They couldn't believe it. And so 
they send um, for the flight attendants to go and come back and get him. And they say, listen, sir, you, you need to, to go to the bathroom and, and put your clothes back on. And he was like, what? What are you talking about? And they said, no, you need to go put your clothes back on. So after convincing him to do that, he um, goes to the bathroom, comes out with his clothes on. Everyone thinks everything's okay. A few minutes later, he gets up, walks toward the bathroom, but kind of stops, stands there, looks at the door, and then goes for the door. I'm talking about the door of the plane, not the door of the bathroom. So he grabs onto that giant handle, trying to pull it to to open the door. And we're 35,000 uh, mid-flight. And like I said, there were bulkhead seats right there. And Craig Tornberg and Mike Burns were in those seats. And they jumped up and they grabbed him and essentially tackled him. And um, everyone was, you know, everyone could not believe what was going on. At first, it was like, this is funny. This guy's not wearing any clothes. Took a little time for him to get his clothes back on. And then um, he goes for the door. He gets tackled. They put him in kind of zip tie, hand ties, uh, what handcuffs, sorry, and bring him back to his seat. They didn't sit him on his seat. He was like kneeling on the seat. So he's kind of facing the back of the plane. And I'll never, ever forget this. He yelled out, this is the world that I created. And everyone was like, oh, my goodness. Um, we made an emergency landing in Oklahoma City, out in the middle of the tarmac. Out comes the FBI, probably local police. Sirens blaring, come on onto the flight take this kid off. I mean, he might have, he's probably in his mid twenties and, um, essentially arrest him. We, we sat on the, the runway for a little bit, Mike Burns and Craig Tornberg. I remember having to, to submit a written statement to the police and to the FBI and, um, yeah, took, took the guy off the plane. We took back off, landed in LA. Um, and if you've ever landed in LA, you kind of go down this gigantic moving walkway hallway that opens up into um baggage claim and when we open those doors i've never seen more press in my life just waiting for us to get off the plane and interview all of us it's funny i mentioned chris tierney because i walked out with him and i saw the press and i ducked and darted out of the way and tierney walked right into it and had to like give interviews right then but it was it was wild. I remember later in the day, my mom was like, I saw this thing on the news. Are you OK? What what happened? I know that it was kind of like national news at the time. But I mean, the poor kid, I, like I, I kind of say all the time, he was either on something or he was not on something um, because he was not acting right. But that was one of the craziest days of my MLS career, without a doubt. Let, let's transition back to soccer a little bit. You guys you finally win a trophy in 2007 in the U S open cup. Um, what was it like winning that game? Did it feel like a big weight taken off the team's back, uh, finally winning a trophy? Yeah, I think so. I, I, partially. I, I mean, I, everyone knows that the, the open cup, it's funny in the, in a country starved for soccer history and it being the longest, um, running championship in, in our sport, you know, it doesn't get a ton of respect, but I, I think guys were happy. But I also know that guys weren't, um, you know, elated thinking that we've finally done it. You know, if I'm being totally honest, the, the MLS Cup is the one that, that everyone wanted. And, you know, guys 
in that sort of era, Taylor and Raleigh and Jay Heaps and Stevie, um, you know, three, five, six, they lost all of those. So to win it in seven was good. I know that the, the crafts and, and everyone was pretty happy, but it, it certainly didn't stack up the same way that an MLS would, an MLS Cup would. Uh, I'm curious, how do players view the U.S. Open Cup? Because I think at some points, teams and players, especially like a year like this year where it's kind of a weird qualification and all that, um, you know, I, it kind of some people get the impression that not all teams take it very seriously. Um, and, and you've won, you know, a U.S. Open Cup early in your career and late in your career. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, has it changed at all during your career? Has it, you know, risen or dropped in importance? Like well, from a player's perspective, what's your thoughts on the U.S. Open Cup? I think the Open Cup kind of change. It's different for each team in each organization how they treat it, and kind of underneath that, it's different for each coach as well. Because I played for the Fire, and they went at the Cup every single year. Um, it was it was a priority along with making the playoffs and making a run in MLS Cup. Um, we lost in a couple of semifinals. Um, the club as a whole has, has won a few. So, you know, there they take it very seriously. Um, I think with the Rebs, it was kind of a mixed bag, but, you know, I know that they've changed the structure this year, but it's, it's a, it's like, it's an onload to the schedule if you go farther, you know, and as, as you, as you advance those games midweek, potential travel, when you're trying to qualify for the playoffs, it becomes pretty tough. But I think from the player's perspective, it's the first game is usually a lower level team. You should always probably win that one. The second one's an MLS team. And after the MLS, after the second game, if you've won, I think a lot of guys kind of look at each other and they say, well, we might as well try and win this thing. And that's kind of how it goes. I've, I've had teams that just chuck it in from the get-go. And they play reserves and win or lose, I don't care. Um, but it being a knockout tournament, then you have, you know, if you're going into double overtime on a Wednesday and then you're fighting for a playoff spot, um, it certainly loses that priority contest. Yeah, I remember uh, Bruce Arena, I think he was on the Extra Time podcast and he told a story of a time when he was with the Galaxy and they had to fly to like Charlotte midweek and they had to use a charter flight for that flight. And they ended up losing two to one and it being an overall kind of miserable experience. I don't know if you were on that team or not, but you, you kind of do get that sense that it's an extra grind for uh, MLS players, which is kind of a shame, too, because, as you say, I think it's the oldest cup tournament in the country's history, uh, but it doesn't really get a lot of shine. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, the Open Cup's funny, too, because it's so regionalized. And I think that you can get certain clubs. I mean, Chicago, for example, that has a pretty pretty easy not easy but a better run you know they're kind of surrounded by usl clubs and um you know, i feel like they tend to play fewer mls clubs to get to the final and whereas other clubs still i feel like it doesn't kind of work out that way um i mean seattle is another club that takes it totally seriously they've got starfire they pack that thing out and they love creating that atmosphere it's kind of part of their brand so i think it just it really just varies club to club Moving on to the uh, other trophy you won in New England, the Superliga in 2008. That was a pretty uh, intense tournament. Uh, obviously, it's a you know international competition. There was a lot of intense physical matches. It seemed like. Um, what was it like playing in the Superliga? 
Yeah, the, you know, I think that the team is still kind of trying to figure out their recipe for matching MLS teams with um, Mexican teams. And that, that was, I feel like, one of the first at the time. Um, the, the interesting thing about Superliga is that the timing in, in the year. Um, a lot of the Mexican teams were kind of in preseason at the time and playing a mixed kind of lineup. So I don't feel like we always got their best team, but those games were super intense. I think it was, I still remember the guy's face. I think it was Atlas, the goalkeeper with the long hair. It would basically turn into a fist fight on the field. Um, but the, those games were, were really good games, um, good experience for us. And, you know, a quick way to, to win a trophy. I do think, I do believe that it, for that tournament, we did fly to L.A., to play Chivas um, before coming back home. But um, I think largely we played those games at home. And so it was a, a solid run to then meet Houston again in the final. Was there any additional um, sweetness to, to beating Houston in the final after losing to them in uh, MLS Cup in 2006 or 2007? I think uh, from our side of it, no one wanted to lose to them again. I think maybe from their side of it, they're saying, maybe, yeah, you guys can have this one. But they were so good at that time that no matter what, we knew we had to to play well and perform well to beat them. Um, It's funny, during that time, and you guys mentioned Players Association stuff, but, you know, it was a a million-dollar prize that the players on the Mexican teams would split but the MLS teams only got to share $100,000 of the million dollars. And so we weren't very happy about that. And during the lead up to that final, um, we were kind of discussing in between the teams, like how we could address it. And so I think in a strange way, players from both teams were working together before that game. Um, and so it might have taken a little bit of the, the rivalry out of it because we felt like there was kind of a bigger purpose to kind of tackle. Um, but certainly in the end, yeah, we wanted to win that game and so happy we did. And um, it, was, it was good um, for the Revs as a club to, to win it at home as well. I don't know how many uh, PKs you've taken uh, in your career, but you were one of the PK takers. I think you were sixth in that game against Houston, uh, which converted. Uh, how nervous were you taking that PK? Yeah, penalty shootouts are always kind of tough. Um, I've always taken penalties in my career, though, so it's it's kind of there's always a moment of nervousness, but you you kind of just gotta go up and 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 make sure you strike it as well as you can. Um, 2006 in that final, I came on as a sub in overtime, and I was actually the sixth shooter as well. Jay missed on five, and I was going to be next. I was definitely nervous that night um and and the run-up to the, the open cup final we beat rochester in a shootout i shot in that game too but um yeah shootouts are kind of you get to that point you 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 do your best to make it and um you know we had a lot of really solid penalty takers on on the revs back then matt reese maybe being the best one ironically 
And that was former New England Revolution midfielder Jeff Theronowitz. Once again, we really wanted to thank him for his time on this podcast. There's a lot of great stuff in there, a lot of uh, stuff that I think will be of interest to Revolution fans. And we got a lot more great stuff from him, too, that will come to you next week. So look forward to that. Thanks again to everybody for listening. Rev's home opener this weekend, or Rev's season opener this weekend. So we'll be coming to you after that. And then hopefully with a part two from Jeff Theronowitz next week. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.